Welcome to the Nurse Becoming Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri from the Resume Rx, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to empowering and encouraging nurses along your path of professional and self discovery. As a nurse practitioner, mom, and business owner, I'm on a mission to help you figure out how to leave your lasting impact on the world, all while bravely and fearlessly growing along the way. Join me for honest conversations and inspiring stories about personal and professional growth, all through the lens of nursing. Well, hello. Welcome back to the Nurse Becoming podcast. It's your host, Amanda Gornieri. And as always, I am so happy to have you here today, whether you are a first time or a long time listener. Thank you. This episode is an interview that I recorded with Dr. Courtney Shia Budin, who is a board certified adult gerontology primary care nurse practitioner in Columbus, Ohio. And we are talking about a pretty sensitive subject. You know, we we start by talking about Courtney's nursing history, kind of what got her into the path of becoming a nurse and then a nurse practitioner. And something in Courtney's life a little bit over a year ago really caused her to cross over from provider to patient. And that's when Courtney was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020. So this conversation evolves from her kind of nursing story and her professional journey to a big milestone in her personal life and how that has affected everything in her life. So I just really enjoyed this interview. I love Courtney. She and I have been connected on Instagram for quite a while now. And hearing her tell her story was just really powerful because she shares it very vulnerably and admirably. So I really hope you enjoy this episode, this interview with Dr. Courtney Shiabudin. Dr. Courtney Shiabudin, welcome to Nurse Becoming. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I was I was thinking before we hit record, how would someone officially address like a formal envelope to your household because your husband's a physician. You're both doctors. What What's the formal address? So when we were getting married, because everybody in my husband's family is a doctor, we were trying to figure out what the actual, like what's the proper formal way to do that. And if both of them are doctors, then it's doctors with the male's name and then the last name, unless the names are different. And then if the names are different, the wife the female goes before the male, which I always thought was oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, and if one is a, a doctor and it's a woman and the male is not a doctor, the doctor goes first. So it'd be like Dr. Courtney and Mr. So-and-so last name. Interesting. I was just thinking of writing like the doctors Shiabudin. Shiabudin, yeah. <laughs> it was it, so after I got my DNP, I got my first piece of mail that was addressed to doctors. And it was like a wedding invitation or something. And it was so strange. And you know, my my husband got, um, I guess, as a physician's, like a physician's appreciation gift one year, they all got mugs like Dr. Shiabudin, doctor, whoever. And that's always been his mug. And then when I went into academics and actually started being called Dr. Shiabudin, I started using the mug. <laughs> and he was like, that's my mug. And I was like, I'm sorry, is that not my name too? Like, <laughs> I love that. 
doesn't say Dr. Shiabudin, MD, just says Dr. Shiabudin, and that is also me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think you should keep the mug. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, he has the one that's like, please don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. And that one I don't feel comfortable using because I don't have a medical degree. But, you know, the doc, <laughs> the, the one that just has the title, I routinely confiscate. Yeah, definitely. I, I would do the same thing. I can't because I am not uh, a doctor. And I'd say not yet because who knows? Maybe it will happen. But my husband's not a doctor either. So it, would, it wouldn't be nearly as funny. It wouldn't be as, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have already uh, formally introduced you in the intro, but I would love for you to just kind of kick us off by telling us a little bit more about who you are and about your nursing journey too. I think that's really a good place to start. Okay. So um, I'm Courtney and I am a nurse practitioner and I am a professor. I teach at Ohio State University and I teach in the graduate college. So I teach specifically in the adult Gero primary care NP program as that is my certification. So I'm an adult Gero primary care NP and I'm also a breast cancer survivor. I went through treatment <laughs> last year during the pandemic and I most recently started mentorship as well. And I, I feel like I have 8,000 different jobs. I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm an NP, I'm a professor, I'm a mentor, I'm a survivor, all the things. Um, yeah. But so I start my first, I started out in the emergency room and that's actually where I met my husband. He was a fellow while I was a nurse. And, you know, they say nurse, it's like the perfect cliche, but um, we met at work and then uh, we moved to Oklahoma and I got my first NP job after I graduated as an HIV specialist. And I worked exclusively treating patients with HIV for just about four years before we moved to Columbus, which is where we live now. And I was like very pregnant at the time of our move. So I didn't look for a job right away. And then I knew I got my doctorate because I wanted to teach. That was my goal. I wanted to help shape the next generation of NPs. And so I looked for academic jobs and then this kind of fell into my lap and I'm about a year and a half as a professor and I just, I love it. And then I work one day a week in the Columbus Free Clinic where I precept uh, medical students, PA students and NP students in a student run free clinic. And I absolutely adore it. So I love it. I feel like you have, you kind of have the best of all the worlds, right? Like you're doing a little bit of everything in, in a good way, right? Like you get to teach, you get to precept, you get to see patients, but you also get to mentor and kind of do your own thing on the side. You know, you have your own platform in your business. And I feel like I mean, I worked in the ER too, so maybe this is an ER thing. Like, I don't know about you, but I have to always be doing something different. Like if my days are exactly the same, I I go a little bit bonkers. Yeah, no, I was absolutely the same. I mean, that's why I loved the ED so much because you never have the same day twice and you're constantly doing something different. And I mean, my husband's like, you have a 36 hour day, Courtney. I don't know how you do it, but I love to be busy. Like when I'm, when I'm stagnant, I like my mental health suffers. So when I was on maternity leave, it was like, it's like, I love my little baby, but I also am bored out of my mind. And I, I can't not have my hands in all different things because I, like I said, my mental health just cannot manage that. So for me, 
I'm the happiest and my marriage is the best and my kids are the happiest when I'm ironically, when I'm really busy because I have to prioritize everything and and I'm the happiest so that you get the best version of me, you know. Yeah, and I think that it's it's good to know that about yourself, right? Like not everybody has that type of insight or allows themselves to model their lives after what they know is going to make them thrive in all the areas. Yeah. It took me a while, but I figured it out that this is what, you know, having my platform and using my voice and teaching and working clinically and precepting, I truly love precepting. It's just, it's so fulfilling for me. And, you know, I work one day a week clinically, so I'm not constantly charting. It's it's kind of like an ER environment. You go in, you see your patients, and then like somebody else handles it in the interim, and it's med students. And then the next week, I show up to my my half day of clinic, and I get to do it again. And it's just you know, I get to stay clinically active, but I don't feel the the overwhelm sometimes of having like a, a full clinical job. And then, you know, I get to teach and give lectures, which keeps me really up to date on, you know, the most evidence-based practice, which I like. Um, you know, I, the guidelines are always changing. And so I'm always amending lectures to teach those things. And because I also teach pathophysiology and assessment, as well as like the last year of NP school's clinical courses, I feel like I kind of have, you know, my hands are in all of the content all of the time. So it's, it, it stays fresh. It's not one of those things where you go to school and then you get out in practice and you don't really remember your pathophys. Like I had, to, I didn't until last year when I had to teach it. And I was like, huh, I have to remember all these things. I have to relearn it so that I can teach it. But I props really to you. It. I mean, pathophys was the worst. It is. <laughs> And I am someone who loves school. I always, you know, did well in school. But man, pathophys and NP school really was. It's it was I, just. I, joke, I wouldn't do a, it again. You couldn't pay no. me to do it again. <laughs> it's a behemoth of a course. You know, <laughs> it's it's a monster course, and you know, it's it's hard to take as a student, but it's really hard to teach too because yeah, I bet there's just so much information. So I want to go back to when you were younger. Like, I want to know, what were you like as a kid? Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like, were there any clues when you were younger that you were going to be going down this path? So I wanted to be a doctor from the time that I was five. Um, and then my grandparents, they both passed when I was in high school, but my grandfather lived with us for a while and he had mesothelioma. And so he was like chronically in and out of like it caused congestive heart failure and all the things. And so the emergency squad was constantly coming to our house to take him to the hospital when he just was struggling to breathe before he went on hospice. And I think I was 15 at the time and the emergency squad in our town was volunteer. And I was just enamored with the whole concept of you know, emergency medical care. And so when I turned 16, I petitioned our city to create what they call a cadet emergency squad. So to allow people under the age of 18 to go to EMT school and then volunteer on the squad. And so because of insurance purposes, it was a whole thing and it had to get, the mayor had to approve it, had to go 
you know, up the city council and all the things. So I petitioned them for a cadet squad and I was the founding member of the cadet squad. And I went to EMT school when I was 16. And then I became an EMT and I absolutely adored it. I was on call Wednesday overnights. So the the squad building was just down the street from where my house was. So I would sleep. And then if we got a call, you know, my pager would go off and I'd like put my clothes on and run down, you know, run out to the car and and drive down to the building and get to ride in the ambulance. And it was, it was just the best. And then I did that all through, all through high school. And then when I graduated high school, I was going to Northwestern and I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. So I uh, got a job as a patient care technician in our big at Marsa Memorial in New Jersey, which was like the closest trauma center to where I lived. And I adored everything about it. And when I was there, I was like, the ER is the only place that I want to be. And I want to be a trauma surgeon. And I loved it. And one of my very first days, we got to crack a chest. And it was just the most thrilling experience of my life. And then I went to Northwestern. And I got a D in chemistry my first semester. And I was like, devastated. I was a I was a like a scholarship athlete. And I was like, well, now I can't take Chem 102 because I didn't like you have to get a C minus. And I got it. It was just so my whole life, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I couldn't continue in the pre med track and I like didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm going to drop out of college. My parents were like, absolutely not. (laughs) No, you are not. And so I didn't really know what to do. I kind of thought about nursing, but Northwestern didn't have a nursing program. And so I kind of struggled. You know, I didn't, I, I knew I wanted to stay in healthcare, but I didn't know how I could stay in healthcare if I wasn't going to be a physician and if I couldn't be a nurse because my school didn't have a nursing school. So I looked at transferring, but who's going to take somebody with a D on their transcript? And so it was, you know, I kind of took my sophomore year to figure out how am I going to get my foot in healthcare if I can't be a physician without leaving my university? And so, I went into communications, specifically healthcare communications, which was okay. You know, I got much better grades because I'm good at communication and it was in a realm that I was interested in, but it wasn't really fulfilling. And so I ended up graduating early because I was an overachiever. And I started working um, at a public relations firm in Manhattan uh, in specifically healthcare public relations. And I worked for essentially like drug companies who were who were either putting out scientific data or doing various media campaigns. Um, and it was exciting because I was, you know, 22 and living in New York and living, you know, living the life on zero money in a teeny tiny little 450 square foot apartment with a roommate. And our rent was like $3,700 a month. It was insane. But I got to have that New York City life experience that I so very much wanted until I was working on a drug for advanced Parkinson's disease that was approved in Europe, and they were trying to get FDA approval in the US. So we had to do a clinical trial. And so I was working with the company to enroll patients in the trial. And as I was doing that, I was, you know, it really hit me that I didn't want to be the person on the communication side. I wanted to be the person who was interacting with the patients. And, you know, I I called my parents and I said, I want to go back to nursing school. Can I move home? Because I couldn't afford my $3,700 a month rent (laughs) if I wasn't working. 
And and they said, yes. So I gave my two weeks notice. I enrolled in community college. I redid all of my science courses and I applied to second degree programs. And, you know, I did a year of, of prereqs and then I got into to Seton Hall's second degree program and I was there for two years and graduated and I found a job working as a nurse in the emergency department. And I loved it. I mean, I was like living my best life. I was so happy. And then I met my husband who we got engaged after six weeks of dating. It's like when you know, you know. And he was like, by the way, I accepted a job in Oklahoma my second year of fellowship. <laughs> and I'm graduating <laughs> in three months. So I'm going to Oklahoma, like want to get married. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we moved to Oklahoma. We were in, we were dating for six weeks, but we were engaged for 23 months. So I feel like we had that we had that long engagement before we got married. So I started my NP while I was working in the ED. Okay, um, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, like, when, no. when did you start your NP program? So I, so I actually, I had trouble finding a job. It was right after the ACA passed, but hadn't been uh, implemented. And every hospital went on a hiring freeze because no one knew what it was going to mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, there was a tremendous nursing shortage, but no one wanted to hire a new grad. And so the hospital that I ended up getting a job in had a change in administration and there was a mass exodus of nurses. Uh, and so they needed to hire like 20 nurses. And so I got a job and I loved it, but I, it took me five months to find a job after I graduated. And so I was like, well, you know, we talked about earlier how I'm never satisfied with the status quo. I couldn't just not be working. So I was like, let me apply to NP school. I know that I want to do that eventually. And essentially the programs were like, you either have to be a new grad or you have to have at least two years of experience. Hmm. So I applied as a new grad. I got in, I started full time. And then when I, um, when I got my, my nursing job, I switched to part-time in school to sort of give me a little bit more time as a nurse. And so when I graduated as an NP, I had three years of nursing experience. I was in an FNP program and then I was commuting back and forth for clinicals. So I was going to live in Oklahoma for 10 days and then come home and do seven straight days of clinicals and then go back. And it was really stressful. I got shingles and and I don't recommend that. And so, you know, I was talking with my dean and they were like, maybe you should switch from the FNP program to the adult Gero program and you can graduate five months earlier. So that's what I ended up doing. But I regret that decision because that decision precluded me from then working in the ED as an NP, which I didn't realize would happen at the time. And so when I graduated, I was looking for ED jobs and I couldn't find one because I couldn't see kids, even in in a hospital that had a children's hospital right next to it because kids could still walk through the door. They didn't want to hire somebody who couldn't see them. So I had to think of something else. And uh, the HIV population is something that had always been something that I was drawn to, I think working in an urban inner city ED, seeing a lot of hepatitis and HIV patients and just seeing how, you know, it was like no one cared about their HIV when they were in the hospital. And that was upsetting to me. And I was like, this needs to change. So there was a job posting for an HIV specialist and it was the first job I applied for. And I got the interview and it was, I got the offer, you know, and it was like everything, the chips kind of fell into place. And um, I worked at a Ryan White clinic. So it was a federally funded HIV clinic. Um, There were only two in the state of Oklahoma. So I would have patients that would drive four hours to see me. And I I just adored it. Uh, 
broke my heart to have to leave when we were moving here. But also I was ready to leave Oklahoma. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It was just like moving from Hoboken to Oklahoma was <laughs> oh, that's a, big, <laughs> a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, for Being sure. Being from New Jersey my whole life and living in Manhattan. And then it was just, it was a lot. So we moved to Columbus and the suburbs of Columbus where we live actually remind me very much of where I grew up in New Jersey. And I've made some great friends here and I love the job that I have now. I wouldn't change it for the world. So I'm very happy. It just, it, it's like, you know, everything happens for a reason. It's like, it took me five months to find a job because that was where I was going to meet my husband. I don't know. Mm. I, I believe in all I that just, crazy stuff. I love your story because it's a really, it's a great example of the, I don't want to say the non-traditional path, but like, sometimes I feel like we all arrive at either, you know, our RN licensure or our NP certifications. And we don't always talk about what came before. And a lot of times, a lot of people have stories like this. And that's why I love to ask this question, because we can kind of assume that people just kind of like went into nursing school, got their four-year degree, worked for five years, and went back for their NP, which certainly is common. But I, I'm finding that it's it's just as common for people like you and me who have non-traditional paths in the sense that we did something different for our undergrad. And then, you know, it was when we had that, you know, maturity of our early 20s, which is, I mean, it's maturity, but not uh, super mature. But that's when we were able to kind of figure out what we ultimately wanted to do. And I also love the story about you being an EMT in high school. I think that sounds like like a, just a big catalyst for your healthcare career in general. So For sure. For sure. I mean, I did all the things that I wanted to do except become a trauma surgeon. And I don't think I would want to do that now. Yeah. Like I, I just, the work-life balance and the, honestly, I don't think I could go hours and hours and hours and not pee. Like for sure. It, yeah. I just don't think I, after children, I just, <laughs> I don't know how they, I don't know how those surgeons do hour long, you know, like eight hour long surgeries and, and don't have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, I know we should, we should ask someone sometime how they, I, how they do I, it. I think, I don't know, maybe Grey's Anatomy is not real life, but I do remember that there was an episode with Christina Yang wearing a diaper for a 10 hour procedure. I think that's on the table. If I'm going to do, if I'm going to do a ten-hour surgery, like diapering and and maybe cathetering, I don't know. It's all on the table. I guess. I mean, a catheter would be. It wouldn't be a bad way to go, except then you have to have one of your. Well, I guess you could do it yourself. It's like then you have to have one of your colleagues put it in for you. Right. I mean, better off just not to have to decide right. these things and stick right. with our stick with what we're doing. <laughs> Oh, God. So you mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but um, a year or so ago, you had a big thing happen in your life with your diagnosis of breast cancer. So uh, I'd love for you to share a bit about that story yeah. and um, however much you want to share. Uh, I'm yeah. All ears. So I am 36 and my mom has had breast cancer three separate times, all new growth breast cancers. And so I've always been hyper aware of the importance of screening because I saw her go through it when I was in, I don't know, sixth grade for the first time. And then right after I graduated from college the second time. Um, and so I 
have always done self-breast exams since I was in high school. Komen was really, really big in our area. And there were, I went to a high school that had several parents who had who had had breast cancer. And so we always were doing fundraisers and things like that. And so it, you know, awareness has always been something that was kind of hammered into me, whether my mom had gone through it or not. I was very aware of breast cancer and screenings. And and so I always did breast self-exams. And when I was 24, I found a lump. And because my mom had had breast cancer once at that time, oh no, twice, twice at that time, I went to my gynecologist and she was like, we're not going to mess around with this. We're going to go, you need a mammogram. And so I went and I got a mammogram. And the thing that I felt was nothing, but the mammogram showed something else. And so it needed a biopsy. And the radiologist in Marstown, where I was, couldn't um, couldn't do it. So I went to NYU and I went to the breast center there and I had a phenomenal Stephanie Zalison. I will never forget her. She held my hand the whole time. I was terrified. Um, and it ended up being a benign fibroadenoma. So a benign finding, but it needed to be, you know, with my, with my history, it needed to be watched. And I had had a breast reduction when I was 18. So I had a lot of scar tissue, a lot of, you know, super dense breasts. I hadn't had children. And so my imaging was like a nightmare to look at. And so they put me into a high risk program at that time so that I would be followed and screened every six months. And so every six months I would go for either a mammogram or an ultrasound. And then I would see a breast surgeon who would put her hands on me and say, you know, we're good or we're not. And we never had another, you know, I got ultrasounded, they measured it, they followed that adenoma for two years. Everything was fine. I got released from diagnostic ultrasounds and just made, you know, annual mammograms. And then every six months I would get an exam by a breast surgeon. And then when we moved to Oklahoma, I needed to establish care similar to that because I wasn't going to fly back to New York for it. And my OB actually put me into a formal high risk screening program. So I got my very first MRI and I would have um, once a year an MRI and then once a year a mammogram and they would be spaced six months apart so that I would be imaged every six months. And I did that and transitioned that to Columbus as well. And everything was normal from 24 until this last February uh, in 2020. And I went, I went in, I had my MRI and then I had to wait a really long time, which was very unusual. And when the the high risk doctor finally came in, she told me that I was going to need biopsies, plural. And I, I was, you know, really taken aback. So they did an ultrasound, they did not let me see it. And then said, you know, the right side, I needed an ultrasound guided biopsy and the left side, they wanted an MRI guided biopsy. And of course, they couldn't do them at the same time. So a week went by and then I, I had my, my ultrasound guided MR, uh, biopsy and the way that they positioned me for the radiologist, I could see the screen in front of me versus the screen being at my head. And the second that they put the probe on it, I knew I had, I had a vasovagal syncope as soon as I saw it. Oh my gosh. Because I mean, it was, you know, we're healthcare providers, right? We have some type of ultrasound training and it just, it, I mean, it was compared to the fibroadenomas that I had had that were well circumscribed and hyperacotic. This was like infiltrative and angry. It was just, it was terrible. And so they biopsied it and I 
went about my life. I went back to work. I was teaching. I was actually in the sim lab giving like with my hands on somebody trying to demonstrate assessment techniques and my phone rang and I saw that it was the cancer center. And so I excused myself. I answered it. And the NP told me that it was malignant and that I had a a very large area of enhancement from the MRI imaging surrounding the mass. And so they wanted to do another MRI guided biopsy of that surrounding area to see if that enhancement was also malignant. And so the next week I went in knowing I already had cancer and they did bilateral MRI guided biopsies and they came back as uh, lobular carcinoma in situ in both breasts. And then uh, my mass was invasive lobular carcinoma. So, you know, I... At that time, my mom had then had breast cancer for the third time the year before this, so in 2019. And I had seen her go through, you know, a mastectomy and then a lumpectomy and radiation and then a second mastectomy with severe complications. And I was like, I'm doing a double mastectomy. This is what I'm doing. I don't want to have to go through this more than once. So I go see my surgeon and he says, you know, we're going to do a double mastectomy. That's your only surgical option. And I, and I said, okay, I was going to tell you that I wanted a double mastectomy, but I wanted it to be my choice. Like, what do you mean it's my only surgical option? And he told me that more than 50% of my breast tissue in the non-malignant side was this pre-malignancy. And there was no way to take that out and not have me look really deformed. So I was like, my husband, my husband was like, well, that's what you were going to do anyway. Why are you so upset? And I was like, well, because I feel like my choice was taken, right? Like that took my power. You know, I was going in there with this like cancer will not stop me attitude. I'm going to take them off because that's my choice. And then I'm being told like that's the only option. It like took the wind out of my sails. And so we scheduled surgery for April 16th or April 13th. What doesn't matter. And then of course, COVID happened. Mm. Um, so this was like, I was diagnosed with cancer on February 13th. And then I saw my surgeon pretty soon after that. And we scheduled surgery and it was just to line up the, the, the breast surgeon and the reconstructive surgeon so that they could be in the OR at the same time, we had to kind of find a date that worked. So it was, you know, like more than a month out, which was stressful in itself, right? Cause that's giving cancer a month to grow, but then COVID happened and, you know, my, my husband being an ER doc and me being an NP and, cancer patient, you know, like watching the news every day and seeing that, you know, Sloan Kettering was, was shutting down its chemo. And there were all of these, these chemo patients who couldn't get their life-saving therapy and watching, you know, every day on the news, it was just like more and more anxiety producing because I didn't know if that was going to happen to me. I didn't know if I was going to be able to have my surgery. And I hadn't seen my oncologist yet. I had to wait to see her until March 31st. So it was like, full on COVID by March 31st. And I was driving into the parking lot to see her and the cancer center showed up on my phone and I answered it. And it was my breast surgeon calling to tell me that he was canceling my double mastectomy because it was scheduled at the peak of COVID and the hospital was getting overwhelmed and he didn't want to bring a cancer patient into a COVID environment if he didn't have to. And he was like, we'll just put you on tamoxifen. And when COVID is over, will do your double mastectomy. And I, I, I think I blacked out. Like I don't, I, I just remember saying, no, no, like we, we can't, I, I, 
there's no foreseeable end. Like I can't have this inside me that it wasn't there six months ago and now it's two centimeters. Like I can't in six months, this thing went from nothing to two centimeters. Like I, I can't wait an infinite amount of time to have it removed. And he was like, well, I just like, there's a PPE shortage and all these, he was just talking. And I was like, I'm at the oncologist. Like, I'm going to have to call you back. So I go in and I see my oncologist and I met her for the first time. And she was like, I don't know what I would have done without her. And I told her that my surgeon had called me as I was arriving and that this is what he proposed. And she was like, we can't do that. She's like, I can't put you on tamoxifen. I don't know. I don't know if you have lymph node involvement. I don't know if you know, all these things. She's like, if I put you on tamoxifen, like the goal, the thing that was going to determine if I needed chemo was my mastectomy when they did my sentinel node biopsies and, you know, a genetic test on my tumor when they would remove it, they would send it to this lab in California and they would do what's called an oncotype test. And that would determine the genetic propensity for metastasis. And, you know, there's a big complicated formula, your age, your hormone status, your family history, your genetic testing, all these things go into it. And there's a number out of a hundred um, that would say, you know, if your if your score comes back and it's at this number or higher, you get chemo. And if it's below, then you get a different treatment. She's like, I can't put you on tamoxifen because it will inhibit your oncotype. Like the results won't be accurate and we won't know if you're going to need chemo or not. So she's like, I'll be right back. So she leaves. I'm like sitting there crying, right? Because I'm like alone, right? There are no visitors because yeah, it's yeah. COVID. And, and and my my mastectomy has just been canceled. And I'm like, I don't know what life is. You know, what is my life going to look like? And she comes back. This is a Thursday. She comes back into it. And she's like, your surgery's on Monday. Oh. Wow. And I like, I gave her, like I was sobbing. And I just like hugged her and I said, thank you. And so I don't know what she did. She coordinated two very busy surgeons who didn't want to do my surgery to do it in three days, essentially. Wow. And so, you know, we don't have any family here. And my my parents were celebrating their 50th anniversary and they were in uh, Bali or Thailand or they were on a cruise around the world. And so they were stuck. They couldn't get home. They were stuck. I think by the time I had surgery, they were they were in Australia somewhere trying to get off the boat. And so my aunt and her wife got in a car and they drove out to take care of me because my husband couldn't not work, right? There was a pandemic. He couldn't not go to his shift in the ER, <laughs> you know. And so I had, you know, at the time, my, my youngest was not even two. And my oldest was, he had just turned four. Five. So I had a one and a five-year-old and no family to help. And I had cancer and my husband was an ER doctor and there was a global pandemic. It was like a recipe for <laughs> massive panic and anxiety. And so um, I had the double mastectomy. I had uh, bilateral sentinel node biopsies and they both came back negative, which was a blessing because this was really early because I was in the screening program. So my cutoff for chemo was 18 and my oncotype came back at 14. So I didn't need chemo. I didn't need radiation. And now I'm on 10 years of tamoxifen. If I had to have cancer, it was the best possible outcome. I'm blessed that I knew enough to put myself in a program and ensure that despite moving, 
I remained in that program. And, you know, like he had said, we were approaching the height of the pandemic. I mean, there was a PPE shortage. So my surgeons were not allowed to have a first assist. So they were for the first time, I think, ever in the OR by themselves. There was one scrub nurse and them. Wow. And so my procedure ended up being two hours longer than it would have been, but it got done. Wow. Hey friend, this episode is brought to you by my membership community, the NP Society. If you are ready to become the NP you always wanted to be, then the NP Society is the place for you. This is a community that is designed for nurse practitioners and students to thrive beyond the clinical setting. This is a safe space for you. Membership includes access to our off-Facebook chat community, as well as weekly virtual events that include guest expert masterclasses, social events, self-care classes, and clinical roundtable discussions. This is the first organization that puts the professional, that's you, at the center, and I cannot wait to meet you inside. To choose your membership level, head to thenpsociety.com or click the link in the show notes. Again, that's thenpsociety.com, and I hope to see you on the inside. Thank you for for sharing all of that. First of all, it was a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but. it's. I guess so. What I keep thinking about is the possibility of how different the outcome would have been if you weren't in this screening program. And, and my question is: Were you in the screening program because of your mom's history, or because of the makeup of your breasts after you had found that initial lump? So it was because. It was because of my mom's history. Hmm. I'm an only child. So so usually to be in a high-risk program, you have to have two first-degree relatives. But I don't have more than one. I only have one first-degree relative because my mom only has one sister and I don't have any siblings. So you know, it was always kind of a fight with insurance to get it approved. But then my dad's sisters had breast cancer twice as well. And my mom's had it three times. And so it was enough of an argument to say, you know, she needs screening. And then when I found that first, you know, that fibroadenoma at 24, that was kind of, you know, I knew that my breasts were all like a a roadmap. I mean, they were a mess, like all the highways intersecting. It was, it was, uh, when, once they diagnosed me, they told me that my imaging was every radiologist's nightmare. Mm. Um, because it was so, it was so hard to interpret because there was so much scar tissue, you know, now it's just skin and implants <laughs> and no feel... nipples. It's very strange. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are you going to get the nipple tattoos? I know, you know, I don't, question. I don't know. I I'm in this, like I, so I had, I had my mastectomy and then uh, three months later I had exchange surgery. So in August I had exchange surgery, just take the tissue expanders out and put actual implants in. And then 11 days after that surgery, I had a post-op hemorrhage, which was abnormal enough to be an M&M in the hospital because normally oh, wow. you don't have an arteri- an active arterial bleed 11 days post-op, but I did. And so I ended up having a revision in December just because I wasn't crazy about how they looked. And I you know, I still examine myself every time I'm in the shower because my oncologist has told me, and I know from doing my own research because I am a masochist and can't not 
use all the resources at my disposal to research my medical conditions and then freak myself out that if I was if I was to get cancer again, if it was to come back, it would either be right at the incision line because that's, you know, millimeters of tissue that is hard for them to separate. So if it was going to come back, it would come back very superficially or it would be in my chest wall and I wouldn't know until it would metastasize. So every day in the shower, I give myself a little exam and about three weeks ago, I found a lump on my cancer side and I was terrified. And so I went to see my surgeon and it turned out that my implant has flipped and the little um, mass that I'm feeling, like pea-sized thing, is the back, the bottom of the implant where the manufacturer fills it with silicone. Oh. And it's like a little pea-sized thing that has the serial number on it. And it's like where it's closed. But of course, I can feel it now. And we don't, he couldn't flip it back. So he's like, well, we could, we could open you up and flip it back. You're right. <laughs> We're both just blinking at each other for those who are listening and hearing the silence. So, oh so now, and you know, it's like they keep calling me to schedule this surgery that I don't know if I, I want to have. I had four major surgeries last year. Yeah. You know, like really major surgeries. And, you know, I have some rippling and so I could do some fat grafting and I have, you know, so some liposuction and transplant the fat and I have an adhesion under my arm that's actually kind of painful. And so he could correct that. But that's like another major surgery. Mm. So now I don't know what to do, you know, because I kind of wanted to be done. But at the same time, like I'm never going to be happy with how they look either, I think. I really, I mean, they're great. Like if you looked at me and you didn't know me and you didn't know I had breast cancer, you would never know that these are unless you saw scars, you would never know that there are implants that I've had breast cancer that I don't have natural breasts anymore. But to answer your question about the nipples, like I kind of don't know because I kind of don't know if I want them to look like breasts for me again. Hmm. You know, I have no sensation. I never will, which makes surgical recovery great because there's no pain. But I don't know if I want them to be breasts again. Yeah. So... Hmm. I have I, before I had them removed, I definitely was getting nipple tattoos and I wanted to go back to normal. And now being on the other side of it, I don't think it I mean they're not they never will be normal, you know. Right. It's like you've strayed far enough from normal that you maybe don't need or want to pretend that they are. Right. Right. So, you know, maybe one day, but it's certainly not. I'd rather not have rippling and adhesions than nipple tattoos. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, you have to like, you can't have surgery. You have to be stable for at least a year before you can do tattoos anyway, because your scars have to, I mean, so. Right. It's premature. Do you think that this whole journey of yours as the patient, do you think that it was easier because you are an NP? Do you think it just kind of was what it was Was there any sort of silver lining that you felt like, you know, at least I can navigate this in a different way because you're an NP or, or maybe the opposite? Like, was there the curse of knowledge where you knew too much and it made it more challenging? So I definitely think there was the curse of knowledge. I had to wait six weeks to see my oncologist after my diagnosis. And all I did was research up to date and the National Cancer whatever it's called, registry with all the different treatments and all. And then one of the 
other professors that I teach with works at the breast center where I'm getting treated and she works with my oncologist, but she does her geriatric patients. So like she just kept giving me all the cancer resources and we would like look up treatment protocols and if I had nodes versus if I didn't have nodes and no lay person <laughs> would ever have access to that or even probably know to research that. So I was having pretty regular panic attacks, like driving on the highway on my way home from work and just sobbing. And I absolutely think it's because I know too much. Mm. You know, and I would want to talk to my husband about it. And he would be like, I am not an oncologist. And you haven't met yours yet. So you need to simmer. And so I couldn't talk to him. So that was when I decided to start sharing it on social media because I felt so alone. I didn't know any other young women with breast cancer, right? Everybody who I knew who had breast cancer was like my mom, like a, a menopausal woman. And it was like all her older friends, you know? And I was I was scared and I had no one – I couldn't talk to my husband about it because I think that was how he was processing it, right? Plus, he was working in a pandemic. So it's like, I don't need your problems. I have my own. Not that he's not – I don't want to position him as not being sensitive to it. But, it, you know, that was how he was coping. And the way that I cope is by talking it out. And he, mm. he and I were just, we were misaligned and we were both trying to survive. And so I asked, you know, I said, are you okay if I share this? Because I think it will be really cathartic for me. Even though I don't know what the treatment is, even though I don't know what the future holds, like I, I need to, to get it off my chest and I need to share it with somebody because I, you're not giving me what I need to, to cope. And I was just panicking. And so that's what I did. And I found tremendous, I mean, like overwhelming support from people that I hadn't talked to in years who had gone through it. And I didn't know who came and said, you know, I was diagnosed at 35 too. Here's my experience. Here are some people that you could talk to. Here are some other accounts on social media. Here are some um, nonprofit organizations that target resources specifically for young women. And it was like, that was exactly what I needed, you know, and, and that was all of the things that would come from not being a medical person because I had gone down this rabbit hole because of, of what I did and who I was and what my job was. And, and that was the worst possible thing that I probably could have done, but I couldn't not have done that. You know, that's my personality. Like I'm in academics. Like I want all the information all the time. Even with hindsight, I don't think I could have gone back and done that differently. I just think it was it was just something that I, I needed to do in the moment. But sharing my story and connecting with other patients and and providers who are also on the patient side now was really helpful. And I, I have to say, being on this side of it now, it's impacted everything. I mean, when I teach, I teach about ensuring that they're doing breast exams at their woman exams. And I tell my students, you know, that I was diagnosed at 35 and that if I didn't have a breast exam or if I hadn't felt something when I was 24, if I, you know, if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I would be alive at 40 to get my first mammogram, you know? And so I, I tell them, I'm like, I'm like the breast Nazi. Like, we're going to do a breast exam and I'm going to teach you to do it right. And I'm going to watch you do it. And I'm going to make sure that you, when you are out there in the world, are screening properly, are educating your patients. And and I'm like, 
so invested in that because I might not have been here had I not gotten that exam, you know? And so when it comes to like the women's health stuff and the cancer stuff, it's like, you know, a lot where a lot of people would be like, this is the personal professional line and I'm not going to cross it. I use that, you know, I use it to tell that, you know, I'm not a normal woman with breast cancer, but that doesn't mean that there aren't hundreds of thousands of women like me, you know, and we as providers need to be diligent about that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like even though like being an NP, being so close to the information, having this curse of knowledge made your process more challenging, like on the flip side, now you have the opportunity to use your experience and and really make an impact on that next generation of of providers, which I imagine is very fulfilling for you. So, so fulfilling. I mean, I love my job. I love that I have this opportunity to do that. I think I said earlier that I went for my doctorate in the first place because I knew I wanted to be able to teach because right. my goal was to shape the next generation. And and I do that in so many different ways, not just turning out NPs that I know are competent and are getting the most evidence-based education, but also it's very personal for me, you know, that that there are certain things that I I know that those people are going to go out there and they are going to do phenomenal things because I used my experience to teach them to ensure that they were going to be awesome at it, you know? Yeah. I just really love you, first of all, you know, just for, you know, everything that you share on social media. And I love that we've become friends, but like the fact that you are also bravely sharing about something really difficult and that you were sharing about it while you were going through it and you're still sharing about it because it's still so much of your story is just a really admirable thing. And I love to hear that it's been healing for you to kind of use your platform in this way and get support and cope by kind of being in community with other people on social media, which you and I have talked about has been a really really fun thing about about the platforms that we that we have on on social media. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know where I would be if I hadn't said I need to share this. I need to be able, you know, I wouldn't have gotten all those resources. I wouldn't have felt that support. I think I would have felt especially with COVID, I mean, talk about isolation, right? I, with, right. with physical isolation of quarantine and then emotional isolation of going through something and and not telling anybody and or having this like silence or shame about it. Uh, it's just that's just it's not who I am. But I will say that there was very little FOMO because everybody was stuck at home. So while I was going through treatment and recovering, like no one else was doing anything. So I wasn't missing out on literally anything. Yeah, no, that's that's true. You you picked the best year to do it, I guess. <laughs> Silver lining. I mean, and I and I was able to continue teaching. You know, I took I took four weeks off of work to recover from my mastectomy, but I taught through everything else because all I had to do was, I mean, I, I could sit in bed and teach, right? All I needed was my computer. And when I wasn't like doped up on narcotics for the first, I don't know, 48 hours post-op, I was like pretty good. 
And and like I said, I need like I don't do well when I'm just kind of sitting around. And so even if I wasn't teaching, just like being able to be in the class and and listen was healing for me. You know, it, it made me feel less like a cancer patient and more like an empowered woman. So I love that. I want to give you the opportunity to share more about your social media platform, more about your business and how you work with people, especially nurses and NPs who are likely listening. Yeah. So like I said, when I was diagnosed, I started my my NP Courtney platform um, to share a little bit more about my experience as well as nursing related content. And it's sort of evolved. I have a blog where I share both lifestyle and nursing content every week. I have created practice guides that are available for, you know, like almost cheat sheets for clinical practice that, you know, I had when I was like pinned up on my board when I was in clinic, like, oh gosh, this patient has uncontrolled hypertension and they're already on two agents. What do I do next? Or how do I manage that? And so I've kind of put all that out there into different things. I have lots of different practice guides. And I recently started nurse mentorship because I love what I do in that I get to mentor my students along the way. But I want to be able to do that and offer that to more individuals out there that are not necessarily, you know, my little cohort of 31 students. And it's been amazing for the nurses that I've I've done sessions with so far and just seeing their paths and and you know, helping them troubleshoot things that they're stuck with or if they want to they want to go back to school and they don't know how to navigate that or what program to go to or you know, they're looking, you know, transitioning from being an RN and going into an NP role. And that can be a little traumatic, as we all know, and kind of figuring out how to navigate that. And so it's just, it's so fulfilling. And I really, really enjoy it. And it's one of my favorite things that I've gotten to do with my platform is meet all these other women, mostly, and and hear their stories and help them navigate through something that's been troubling. Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of yours, a big cheerleader of yours and all your offerings, which I will link up in the show notes. So if anyone's listening, you want to tap over to the show notes for links to Courtney's blog and Instagram and practice guides and mentorships. We'll make sure that is all there for you. So Courtney, thank you so much for telling your story, sharing bravely and vulnerably. You're just... You're great. You're a light. I appreciate you. You're so sweet. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to, I admire your podcast so much. I love listening to it. So this is a true honor. Thank you. Well, that does it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end. If you found today's episode helpful, would you take a minute and give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? It will truly help other nurses find this show and know that it's worth listening to. For more information about this episode, as well as a place to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes or guests, head to nursebecoming.com. I cannot wait to connect with you again soon. And until next time, remember, I am always rooting for you.